Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. We just wrapped up an excellent couple of days here at Theopolis at the Theopolitan Ministry Conference, and here we are featuring a talk from Dr. Trevor Lawrence that he delivered at that conference, titled, Singing the Future, Learning to Hope in the School of the Psalms. Trevor Lawrence is the Executive Director of the Cataclysia Institute, and is the first winner of the James B. Jordan Prize for Outstanding Work in Biblical Theology. Well, if you are a Theopolis partner, or if you receive our weekly newsletter, you know that we are very excited to have released the Theopolis app. We've been working for a couple of months to get this launched, and now there is a Theopolis app with videos, audio, feeds of our blogs, and more. This app currently has dozens of videos from James Jordan, Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, and Rich Lusk, as well as audio blogs, psalm chants, lectures on sexuality and pedo communion, and we look forward to adding more and more to this platform every week. So please check out that Theopolis app in your app store, and we look forward to serving you through that new tool. We want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy this time of teaching. And here is Dr. Trevor Lawrence speaking about hope and the Psalms. In his homily number 10 on Psalm 1, Basil of Caesarea notes that we humans are guided only with difficulty toward virtue. We're governed by disproportionate desires, neglectful of righteousness, susceptible to false teachings and false loves. Now, Basil reasons that the Psalms are the Holy Spirit's wise remedy to our resistance toward the holiness and virtue that is pleasing to God and good for us, like a physician who wrings the cup with honey when giving a willful child his medicine. The spirit in the Psalms mingles with the doctrines, the delight of melody, quote, so that by the pleasantness and softness of the sound heard, we might receive without perceiving it the benefit of the words. Basil concludes, the spirit, quote, devised for us these harmonious melodies of the Psalms that they who are children in age or even those who are youthful in disposition might to all appearances chant, but in reality become trained in soul. To the uncritical eye, when we take up the Psalter, we are merely praying and singing, but like medicine under a spoonful of sugar, beneath the surface of our song, God is at work in a regimen of spiritual training that prepares us for the serious task of living. To borrow a phrase from Ambrose, the Psalter is a communal gymnasium of souls, a stadium of virtue. These scriptural prayer songs are, to be sure, an anatomy of the soul. They are profound expressions of every conceivable emotion, but they're more than channels for our emotional expression. They are pedagogical prayers that teach us how to pray and that teach us through the very process of prayer. And one of God's aims in this psalmic gymnasium of souls is to train us in the virtue of hope, 
to exercise our affections in longing for the blessed future God has promised, to teach our hearts to rest confidently in Yahweh's covenantal assurance of what is coming. When we enter the Psalter Stadium of Virtue, the Bible's school of song, we learn to hope. We're engaged in the transformative process of becoming a people characterized by hope in God. Now that the Psalms are deep resources for hope should come as no surprise because so many are transparently born out of desperation. The Psalms are not the pious reflections of untroubled armchair Israelite theologians. They're in many cases the urgent cries of people whose lives are hanging in the balance and who are reaching out to God to grab hold of some sustaining promise in seemingly impossible circumstances. The psalmists bear witness to the diverse pains of human experience. Physical sickness, false accusation, violent assault, relational alienation, the stinging awareness of personal sin, institutional injustice, military invasion, war crimes, communal displacement, and the tragedy of exile away from the templing presence of God. In the midst of it all, the psalmists lift their eyes to the heavens and ask, how long? And they whisper back to their hearts in various iterations I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted. Reinforcing for Israel in nearly every psalm the conviction that Yahweh will certainly act for the sake of His people. And in so doing, these prayers of hope birthed out of desperation lift our eyes in every conceivable circumstance to the God who has already secured a future for us. Even the shape of the Psalter is an exercise in hope. If you pray straight through the 150 Psalms, organized across five books, you'll find yourself on a journey through the history of Israel and the history of the entire world. You'll begin in books one and two, saturated in the prayers of David, traversing through suffering to the throne until you arrive at Psalm 72. A prayer of Solomon asking God to empower the Davidic anointed to rule in justice, overthrow the wicked, receive tribute from the nations, and actualize all the covenant promises of God. From that high point, at the center of the Psalter, you'll plunge in book three into the devastation of exile and the disintegration of the monarchy, only to be confronted in book four with a chorus of affirmations that Yahweh indeed reigns. And that Yahweh can be trusted to keep his royal word. And in book five, you'll celebrate the second exodus of the exiles back into the land and sing in anticipation of a son of David who will defeat the wicked and restore the kingdom until you end up in a fivefold hallelujah that celebrates the Lord's faithfulness and envisions the consummation of the cosmos in praise. The very structure of the Psalter is carefully crafted to take us through the valley of the shadow of Israel's death 
and up out of the grave of exile in confident expectation of the future that God has purposed for his world. It is a choreography of prayer that culminates in hope and that presses hope into our hearts. Now, if the individual psalms are overtures of hope, and if the whole Psalter inclines on a trajectory of hope, then we can only conclude that the book of Psalms is God's gift for inculcating hope into his people. Consequently, to neglect the Psalms, as so many of our contemporary churches do, is to reject a God-given means of hope cultivation. If we look out at the landscape of modern Christianity and find there a void of biblically rooted hope and the praxis that hope animates, it may very well be the case that this hopelessness is due in no small part to psalmlessness. On the other hand, a recovery of psalmful worship and discipleship may be just what the doctor ordered to build hopeful communities who are prepared for the long and often hard work of fidelity and witness in the waiting time. Now in the time that remains, we're going to take a three-stage tour of the School of the Psalms, and we're going to explore how these prayer songs teach us, how they guide us on the path toward becoming people of hope. We'll consider the formation of hope, the content of hope, and the practices of hope. Formation, content, and practices. First, the formation of hope. Here, I'm particularly interested in this question. How do the Psalms shape us for hope? That is, how do they act upon us? How do the Psalms actually exert their transformative force, their transformative influence on the people of God? Now, let me suggest to you that the answer is not primarily by supplying us with theological content for our conscious cognitive reflection. Now, it's certainly the case that the Psalter is rich with theological doctrine and teaching. No one can deny that. And that doctrine and teaching can be summarized, systematized, and studied with great benefit to us and others. But that's not the primary mode by which the Psalms intend to teach us. Because the Psalms are not merely declarative texts through which authors didactically transmit information to us. They are performative texts through which authors put words in our mouths and in our hearts. Now, we instinctively know this. As soon as we step into the Psalter, we recognize that there's something utterly unique about this book of Scripture. Narratives recount events. Laws issue commands. Proverbs delineate wisdom. Prophecy speaks of impending judgment and unfailing promises. In all these texts, the Word of God comes to the people of God. But in the Psalms, the word of God to the people is explicitly intended to serve as the words of the people back to God. The Psalms come to us with first-person 
pronouns so that David's prayers become my prayers. Israel's songs become our songs. The words no longer sit stagnant on the pages of the Bible. No, they bubble up from our gut. They propel from our lungs. They resonate in our throats. They stir affections in our hearts. All the speech of the Psalter consequently implicates us. It involves us, commits us, stakes a claim on our lives. When we receive the Psalms rightly, we don't merely embrace their teaching. We embody their cries. We don't merely interrogate their teaching. We inhabit their world. Now, what do I mean by that? Inhabit their world. I mean that the Psalms sing a storied world and immerse us within an alternative reality. The Psalms sing a storied world and immerse us within an alternative reality. You see, in its prayer songs, the Psalter unfolds a world before us. These world-rendering scripts present a theologically charged, narrative-shaped vision of the cosmos. Consider, when Psalm 97 shouts, the Lord reigns, it's making a statement about the very foundation of reality. This world, our world, the world that we set foot on right now is a world in and over which Yahweh, not some abstract deity, but the particular God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this is a world in which that God rules as king and sovereignly sets the agenda for all history. That is our reality. When Psalm 136 repeats, his steadfast love endures forever. It's tracing the covenantal contours of all creation. The hesed, by which the Lord committed himself in covenant to Israel in the distant past, is a fundamental constant even now that defines Yahweh's posture toward his people yesterday, today, and forever. When Psalm 98 sings, he will judge the world with righteousness. It's unveiling the end of the story of the whole cosmos. The narrative in which this world finds itself is one that culminates with a just king doing justice. Now, each of us inescapably lives as if we're characters in some kind of narrative. You can't get out of that. Whether it's conscious or not, we are narrative creatures who orient ourselves within the world by means of story. But when we perform the Psalms, we perform the reality they project. We practice the storied world that they unfold and we are thrust into it. Singing the Psalms, we are immersed minds and affections, and even our physical bodies in God's narrative. We take up the psalmist's words and enter into the true story of the world as characters. 
Every time we pray a psalm, we step into a new vision of reality. We give ourselves over to a new story. We participate in the cosmos as it really is. And over time, that changes us. We learn through practice to conceive of the world as the domain of God. As we're pulled into the world of the Psalms over and over again across years and decades, they begin to break through our delusions about the world and unwind our faulty, instinctive assumptions about reality and challenge our visceral conceptions of God and self and creation. In turn, they habituate us to the story of God that they're telling. Seasoned psalm singers begin to take the psalmic world for granted as the world that's truly true. Performing the, the psalms is a, a lot like stepping through the wardrobe into Narnia. Before too long, you spend your childhood doing that. You're unable to live in the normal world the same way ever again. Why? Because you've actually inhabited a larger, grander, more glorious world. A world that's even more real. A world that transcends everything you thought you knew. You have discovered by participation that there's more to reality than meets the eye. That, I submit, is how the Psalms form us. They invite us into a re-narrated world an alternative reality. And they recast our imagination so that we begin to intuitively regard, perceive, evaluate, and move through this world according to the story of God. Specifically, the Psalter shapes us into people of hope by pressing us into God's story such that over time we learn to reflexively respond to our circumstances in the security of the future that we know is coming. Now, if you imagine the cosmos according to the late modern story of the world, and every single one of us here has been molded to do so by the formative choreographies of a culture of technological mastery and expressive individualism. If you imagine the cosmos according to the late modern story of the world, the most reasonable response to the often painful, disorienting, confusing experience of existence is despair. If reality is confined to the imminent frame and the only thing that matters is matter, and there's no meaning to the world, and nature exists purely for your manipulation, and the purpose of your life is whatever you determine in a given moment, and history is a series of contingent accidents, and the future will be the undetermined and undeterminable extension of cause and effect, then at an objective level, there simply is no ground for hope. If that's the air you breathe, you'll exhale resignation and resentment when you're not holding your breath in denial. But psalm singing is an act of rebellion against the tyranny of the imminent frame and the logic of despair. 
When we commune with God through the Psalms, we step out of the late modern story and are inducted into Yahweh's story. We make our home inside a God-governed covenantal cosmos in which genuine hope is not only possible, but is in fact the only reasonable response to the true structure of reality. By reframing our most basic sense of the world, the sense of the world that we carry deep in our bones, the Psalms recalibrate our disposition, our impulses, our character for living. They ground us in a world of hope. And in so doing, they cultivate in us a stabilizing confidence that God will bring His story in which we are players to completion. The goal of hope formation with the Psalms is not merely becoming theologically educated people who have biblical material and propositional truths stored in our minds for conscious recall in hard circumstances. Though as we all know, that is a blessed fruit of Psalm saturation. Nor is the goal merely becoming habitually prayerful people who have the responses of the Psalms scripted into our hearts so that they involuntarily populate our prayers in the valley. Though again, that is a beautiful, unmistakable gift of psalm singing. At an even deeper level, the goal is to become citizens of the psalmic world. To hold in our sinews and souls a kind of bodily and effective knowledge of our place in the cosmos with God and with God's future, to carry wherever we go a visceral, abiding sense of the safety, security, belonging, and joy that characterize and are conjured by hope, such that hope names the very orientation from which we experience, interpret, and react. I want to perform the Psalms and dwell in their world until entrusting myself to God as I walk through this life feels as effortless and natural as entrusting myself to gravity as I walk upon the soil. So in the most basic analysis, the Psalms shape us for hope by immersing us in their hopeful vision of reality. They conscript us into their world and reorient our imaginations such that the habits of hope become increasingly instinctive. But this brings us to our second question regarding the content of hope. For what? do the Psalms teach us to hope? What's the substantive future to which the Psalms bear witness? What sort of confidence does God intend to grow in us in our praying and singing? Well, to begin with, the Psalter holds out a just hope. That is, the Psalms direct us to a future in which God definitively and perfectly exercises justice and actualizes his righteous reign upon the earth. One of the animating questions throughout the Psalter is this question of justice. You hear it all over the place. 
Will the wicked prosper and prey upon the innocent forever? Will the righteous suffer under unjust accusations and assaults without redress? Will God keep his promise to judge the world in righteousness? The priority of this concern is evident in the very organization of the Psalter. At the beginning, the middle, and the end of the book of Psalms, we're explicitly confronted with the hope of God's justice. Psalms 1 and 2 open the Bible's hymn book with complementary promises of divine justice. In Psalm 1, the man who delights in the law of the Lord is blessed. The Lord knows his way, and he's like a tree planted by streams of water, but the wicked are not so. They're like chaff that the wind of God's theophanic stormy presence drives away. They will not stand in the judgment, and sinners will not populate the congregation of the righteous, for the way of the wicked will perish. Of all the ways the Psalms could have begun, they begin with the promise of justice. And who will be the chosen human instrument to actualize God's purposes for justice in history? Psalm 2 tells us, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. In the heart of the Psalter, at the midway point, the hinge connecting books 2 and 3, Psalm 72 reaches For this coming messianic king, this son of God who is a son of David, give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. Move into book three. When Asaph in Psalm 73, the very next psalm, admits, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. When he acknowledges the confounding fact that in the present world order, the violent wicked are always at ease and increase in riches while the godly are stricken and rebuked. When he's honest in his heart about that frustrating confusion, he comforts his heart, and ours with the hope of justice. I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. My flesh and heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far off from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. And at the Psalter's conclusion... God's justice fills the foreground of Israel's future hope. Psalm 145, the Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. Psalm 146, the Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Psalm 147, the Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. And on it goes until Psalm 149 calls the godly to exult in glory and envisions them participating in the advent of God's justice. 
executing vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples with high praises in their throats and two-edged swords in their hands. Now, if we find that psalmic hope arresting, we might simply ask with Paul, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? We might revisit his encouragement to the Roman church. The God of peace will soon crush Satan. Where? Under your feet. And where did Paul learn that? Genesis 3, to be sure, but you can almost hear it refracted through the prism of the Psalms, specifically Psalm 68. God will strike the heads of his enemies. The Lord said, I will bring them back from the depths of the sea that you may strike your feet in their blood. We might listen again to Jesus' message to the Christians of Thyatira in Revelation 2. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. As when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. Now do you hear that? According to Jesus, the one who conquers by holding fast to his testimony in the face of violence will participate in a Psalm 149 exercise of justice by sharing in the Psalm 2 royal authority of the risen King. Neither Jesus nor the New Testament authors is embarrassed by the Psalter's hope of justice. To the contrary, they proclaim it as part of our inheritance in the gospel, by which we're granted in grace to share in the ruling and reigning of Christ. And they hold it out as a resource for the church's steadfast witness of holiness and peace. Because when Christians around the world stare violence and death in the face on a daily basis, the hope of Yahweh's perfect justice and the saints' righteous, vindicating, authoritative participation in its manifestation upon the earth is one of the few things strong enough to empower courage and forgiveness and peaceable endurance in the way of the cross. The Psalter contains a flood of prayers that lament over the ruinous reign of the wicked in individual lives, within the covenant community, and in Israel's affairs with the nations of the earth. A chorus of cries like Psalm 7410, How long, O God, is the foe to scoff, is the enemy to revile your name forever? But the refrain that punctuates the song of the Psalter, beginning and middle and end, and in so many other places along the way, is a guarantee that Yahweh the King will see to it that justice is done. The Lord will vindicate His people. The lying accusations, false condemnations, and unjust attacks against the righteous will be overturned by a better, truer judge who will not let his people be put to shame forever. 
The arms of the wicked shall be broken. Yahweh will interrupt the world's cycle of violence and disempower the abusers of his people so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath and destroy their descendants from the earth. The line of the wicked will be cut off. And the threat that the ungodly pose to the kingdom in every new generation will finally be irreversibly broken, never to compromise God's shalom again. And even the demonic powers behind the scenes of oppressive and predatory earthly kingdoms will fall under the justice of God. For God has taken his place in the divine council, in the midst of the gods he holds judgment. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die. And our God shall inherit all the nations. All the tears over injustice that are shed in the Psalms are conditioned by the certain hope that evil defeating, wrong righting, shame reversing, vindication accomplishing, kingdom consummating, world renewing justice is on its way. In the Psalms though, this just hope for the future is simultaneously a cultic hope. Now what I mean by that is that the Psalter's hope is centered on sacred space. When the psalmist envisioned the future that God purposes for his people, the future for which image bearers were made, it's not merely a scenario where sin is judged and the righteous flourish. It's a future in which the holy presence of a holy God dwells upon holy ground with a holy people inundating his covenant community and even the entire creation with his glory. And significantly, this hope of justice and the hope of glory in the Psalms are not two separate things. They're inextricably connected because as we'll see, the justice of God is ordered toward the creation, preservation, and expansion of a holy home with humanity, a dwelling place for God and man. The entire story of the Bible, in effect, is a story of sacred space. In the beginning, God builds a three-tiered cosmos as a house. The most holy heavens above where God sets his throne, the firmament with incense clouds and lights like lampstands, the realm of land and sea beneath, a three-tiered temple for his glory. The Lord plants a garden in the high ground of Eden as his first sanctuary mountain. The original inbreaking of heavenly sacred space onto the soil of the earth. He installs Adam in his sanctuary garden as a son of God who bears the image and likeness of his father. And Yahweh commissions this son as a royal priest. As a priest, Adam is to serve and guard the garden from unholy intrusion quite like the later Levites and priests in the tabernacle. And as a king, this son of God is to subdue the earth and exercise dominion, expanding the borders of God's sanctuary, adorning the land with beauty and glory in royal wisdom, preparing creation as the holy house of a holy God. What we see in the first chapters of Genesis is God deputizing a son to bring his cosmic temple to completion. 
Now, when the crafty serpent encroaches into that sacred space, the royal priest fails to guard God's garden dwelling, doesn't he? He doesn't subdue the threat. He doesn't drive out the corruption. So Yahweh drives out the unholiness. Only this time, it means driving out humanity. This Adamic son is expelled through the eastern gate from the place of God's presence, and now a crisis question hangs over the whole creation. Who will come and make the world God's holy house? And God himself provides the answer. From the line of the woman will arise a seed, a son of God, who truly embraces the calling of a royal priest to subdue the serpent and his offspring. He'll crush the serpent's unholy head beneath his heel, and he will consummate creation in fulfillment of Adam's commission as the dwelling place of God's glory. Everything that follows in the story of Scripture traces Yahweh's purpose to make his home upon the earth and to welcome sanctified sinners back into his glory presence. In the Exodus, God shatters the Egyptian serpent and brings out Israel as a new creation up from the waters of the sea. Yahweh calls Israel his firstborn son and makes them a royal priesthood. Israel is an Adamic people. And when God descends in glory at Sinai and crafts a three-tiered tabernacle to dwell in their midst, he's building a three-tiered cosmos in miniature where the holiness of heaven settles upon the earth. A new creation erupting into the old in fabric and gold. He's reestablishing a mobile Eden where God and his Adamic community may abide together. Even here, though, the Lord makes clear that his intentions are not relegated to a small patch of land. He will not be satisfied to fill a tent, but promises that all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Israel, a new Adam, meets an angel carrying a sword and enters Canaan from the east as if re-entering Eden with a command to expel the serpentine nations so that Yahweh may dwell in holiness in the land. David reigns as a son of God and subdues the land so that Solomon can construct the temple of the Lord and ornament the interior with arboreal imagery like a sanctuary garden. And God calls Israel to be holy as he is holy, to purge the evil from their midst, to cleanse their corruption with atoning blood, to reject the practices and idols of the nations so that Yahweh's land won't be corrupted, so that Israel won't be driven out like Adam, so that Yahweh's people can remain in Yahweh's presence and possess all the blessings of life in communion. This is the story within which the Psalms consciously sing, and it's the story that shapes their hope for the future. So if we revisit Psalm 1, we'll find that it's not just about justice for the righteous and the wicked. It's about God's dwelling place and who gets to reside there. The righteous man is a fruitful tree planted by streams of water who's welcomed in the assembly that gathers around God. Those are the echoes of Eden. But those who delight in the law of the Lord aren't merely invited into God's garden. They, in some sense, are God's garden. 
an outpost of Eden in a wilderness world. Moses' song of the sea, if you remember in Exodus 15, declared that Yahweh would bring Israel into the land and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary which your hands have established. And Psalm 1 sings that the promise of Exodus 15 is the present status and future destiny of the faithful, fit for and planted in the presence of the Lord to bear the fruit of holiness and worship. Everywhere in the Psalter, this arboreal image is a root metaphor, so to speak, for the people of God. Israel is a vineyard planted in the land of Yahweh's presence, crying for him to make his face shine on them again. David is a green olive tree in the house of God, rehearsing the hope that the Lord will uproot the wicked. The righteous flourish like the palm tree planted in the house of the Lord. The anticipated future is of sons like plants and daughters like pillars in a temple, a garden sanctuary, where the fruitfulness and abundance of God's blessings can only be characterized as positively Edenic in scope. The unholy in Psalm 1, however, who intrude in God's garden will not dwell in the glory cloud. They'll be driven out by the whirlwind. The justice that pours forth from the holy presence of the Lord expels the unholy chaff so that the godly garden can abide unperturbed before the face of their God and King. With Psalm 2, the same complex of themes is developed with a focus on the role of the Davidic anointed in working out God's purpose for history. The Lord sets his king on Zion, his Edenic holy hill, to mediate God's reign from the Temple Mount and decrees that the Davidic son is indeed a son of God. The hoped-for ruler of Israel is a new Adam, a priestly king. And when he finally takes possession of the ends of the earth and dashes rebellious nations, he'll do so as the royal priest who crushes the serpent's seed and subdues the earth as the house of Yahweh's glory. When the Lord sees counterfeit kings craftily scheming against his son and his sanctuary, he laughs and he bids us join in hope that an heir of David will finish the work that Adam began. Now, when your ears are primed by the story and these introductory psalms to the cultic character of Israelite hope, the preoccupying promise of Yahweh's presence with his people begins to absolutely leap from the Psalter. In Psalm 5, David prays as a priest king guarding the sanctity of God's temple kingdom. He pleads for Yahweh to cast out the wicked from the place of his presence, fueled by the conviction that the proud will fall because God will not ultimately dwell with evil. In Psalm 23, David sings his destiny, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And in Psalm 27, he confirms that such a destiny is really the only thing worth living for. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. In Psalm 58, David describes unjust leaders as venomous serpents who deal out violence against the sons of Adam. 
He begs God to break the teeth in their mouths, to crush their heads as it were. And he proclaims in hope that the righteous will bathe their feet in the blood of the wicked. Does that image sound familiar to you? God's land will be liberated from unholiness when his royal priesthood crushes serpents underfoot so that the sons of Adam may dwell securely with God. Psalm 72 prays for the advent of the royal priestly son of God who will actualize the proto-evangelium by crushing oppressors, making enemies lick the dust exercising royal dominion from sea to sea and expanding God's temple kingdom to the ends of the earth. And the song culminates book two of the Psalter with the cosmic hope that the whole creation will one day become the house of Yahweh's holy presence with the same exact verb that described God's glory cloud filling the tabernacle and the temple in Exodus 40 and 1 Kings 8. The psalmist shouts, may the earth be filled with his glory. Psalm 74 weeps that the nations entered God's land, burned his sanctuary, and profaned his dwelling place. But it remembers that Yahweh crushed the heads of monstrous serpents in the past with the not-so-subtle implication that he can be trusted to do it again, reversing the horror of exile so that his people can be restored into his templing presence. Psalm 85 laments as Israel languishes but it holds fast to the hope that God will rescue and dwell among them. Listen to this. Surely His salvation is near to those who fear Him. Why? That the glory may dwell in our land. Psalm 110 announces the advent of a Davidic king who is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And with resounding reverberations of Genesis 3, the psalm declares that this Son of God will smash kings and shatter literally the head over the wide earth when his enemies are put beneath his feet like a footstool. It's a messianic psalm, to be sure. But it's a messianic psalm about the messianic royal priest who crushes the serpent's seed with his heel so that the temple kingdom that was lost at Eden may be resurrected never to fall again. Psalm 140, long after the prayers of David have supposedly ended, David reappears in the last pages of the Psalter, almost like a psalmic shoot from the stump of Jesse. And though his violent enemies are again like serpents aiming to trip up his feet, amid his prayer that God would judge the head of those who surround him, David declares that Yahweh will render justice so that the upright shall dwell in your presence, head-striking judgment on violent serpents, establishing the saints as a sanctuary people. The hope of Psalm 1715 is the hope of every son and daughter of God. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. The destiny of all creation is consummation as the cosmic temple it was always designed to be. And the destiny of God's people is proximity to his presence, life before his face, fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore in the place where the glory of God dwells. The hope of the Psalms for justice and for glory is ultimately, however, a Christic hope. That is, the future that the Psalter anticipates 
is one that comes to fruition in Jesus. After his resurrection, Jesus pointed his disciples to the law, the prophets, and the Psalms when he taught them about all the things he was fulfilling. And indeed, if we trace the threads of psalmic hope, we'll find that every single one leads us to Jesus. The Psalms hope for public vindication amid the unjust suffering of the righteous. Jesus, the singularly righteous individual, is falsely accused and undeservedly condemned to death. The Gospel writers going so far as to pull verbatim descriptions from the Psalter to frame Christ as the true innocent sufferer. On the cross, Christ prays Psalm 31, into your hands I commit my spirit. Psalm 31, an imprecatory psalm that anticipates God's vindicating reversal. And with his prayer, Jesus entrusts himself, as 1 Peter tells us, to him who judges justly. In his resurrection, the father vindicates his son, answering Jesus' prayer, overturning the unjust verdict of a violent world, exalting Jesus out of shame and death, and declaring the truth that the wicked tried to suppress. So now, every disciple united to Christ also shares in the vindication of his resurrection. God has already declared his verdict over your life. And on the last day, he he will see to it that the vindicating truth about his righteous children is known when he raises us up and glorifies us with Jesus. The Psalms hope for a son of God, an Adamic priest king from the line of David who crushes the serpent, drives out unholiness, exercises global dominion and finishes the world to be the temple kingdom where God reigns and resides. Jesus arrives as that royal priestly son, challenging the serpentine shepherds of Israel, driving out the kingdom of darkness from the land, and cleansing God's temple until he strikes the serpent through his death and resurrection, ascends his throne as the Davidic king, builds a holy temple for the spirit in the church, and receives the tribute of Gentile nations. Now, every saint bound to the Son of God is a son of God too. Members of a royal priesthood. And we continue in the Adamic task of subduing the earth and treading on serpents in prayer and worship and gospel witness until the day Christ returns to truly crush Satan under our feet, expel every unclean thing from his creation, and consummate the cosmos as the temple of God. The Psalms hope that Yahweh himself will disempower and overthrow the wicked in perfect justice. So Jesus steps into history as the incarnate Lord. And his final week on earth follows in the footsteps of Yahweh's typological death and resurrection in Psalm 78, when God rejected an unholy house at Shiloh and when the ark was captured by the Philistines. Hear this psalm. He forsook his dwelling, the tent where he dwelt among mankind, and delivered his power to captivity his glory to the hand of the foe. But then the Lord awoke as from sleep. 
like a strong man shouting because of wine, and he put his adversaries to rout. He put them to everlasting shame. Jesus disarms the rulers and authorities and triumphs over them in his victory over death, liberating his people along the way from the power of their dominion. And like Yahweh, the cosmic warrior king, Ascending Mount Sinai after the Exodus or ascending Mount Zion after the conquest, Jesus ascends to his throne atop the heavenly Zion after defeating the enemies of his people at Calvary, and he constructs a house for his spirit. And when he returns, Jesus will exercise all the prerogatives that the Psalms predicate of Yahweh. He'll judge the world in righteousness. He'll render to each exactly what he's due, and he'll scatter the wicked with his theophanic glory, coming, as Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 1, to grant relief to you who are afflicted when he's revealed in flaming fire to inflict vengeance and cast the ungodly away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. The Psalms hope that Yahweh's glory will fill the earth and that the righteous will dwell in wholeness and holiness with God. So Jesus embraces the exile of the grave in order to lead exiles on a resurrectional exodus into life with God. The spotless lamb cleanses sinners from their every uncleanness and makes them into a holy house, sending his spirit to fill up his church like the glory cloud filled the tabernacle and temple. Remember, Psalm 1 envisions the righteous in Edenic terms as trees planted by streams of water. But Jesus makes his people the sanctuary garden of God. Not just planted in God's presence, but with God's presence planted in us. We're branches in the Lord's vineyard united to Christ, the true and fruitful vine. An Edenic people from whose hearts pour forth rivers of living water as God's glory spirit makes his home in us. Christ sends us into the world to expand the bounds of his garden, spreading his temple to the ends of the earth, and he will come again to renew the world. He'll fill up the universe with the glory of God like the holy of holies itself. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Jesus secures every facet of psalmic hope. Every structure in the Psalter's story world comes to completion in him. Now that means that for the Christian, we in one sense already live in the future for which the psalmist longed, even as we wait for the day when we shall possess it in full. And every time we sing and pray the psalms, we're singing and praying a multidimensional witness to the work of God in Christ that has the capacity to point our hearts afresh to the gospel to secure us in gratitude and joy for Jesus' accomplishments and to deepen our hope that he will indeed finish in his second coming what he started in his first. 
We're getting short on time, but that brings us finally to the practices of hope. We'll try to be quick. Here the question we're asking, how do the Psalms equip us to embody hope in the world? This is an especially important question because sometimes, perhaps for some of us, much of the time, the kind of just, cultic, Christic hope that's on display in the Psalms is in short supply in us. But for world-weary hearts, the Psalms that give us words to express our hope in God simultaneously give us practices to fight for hope in God. These songs show us what the hopeful life looks and sounds like, even as they resource dry-souled saints for the pursuit of hope when it seems hard to come by. The Psalter, of course, supplies us with scripts that sing the world to come. To pray the Psalms is to practice remembering the future, a future that is certain but not yet seen, but that's only one feature of the Psalter's comprehensive curriculum of hope. Because the Psalms don't merely point us to a future, they sweep us up into an entire history. They train us to reconceive past, present, and future, all of which coalesce together to catalyze our disposition of hope. And they equip us with the practices of prayer to represent the hope-inducing truth of God to our hearts, to reimmerse our imaginations in his totalizing story. How? Psalms of thanksgiving train us in the disciplined practice of rehearsing the past works of Yahweh. But the past never stays in the past, does it? It impinges upon the present and shapes expectations for the future. We sing of God's former works in creation and exodus and faithfulness amid rebellion and restoration after exile. We recite the contours of salvation history and the Lord's steadfast love within it. And Yahweh's record of prior deeds establishes the precedent for our ongoing anticipation that he'll continue to act on behalf of his covenant people in the power and pattern of his acts of old. Thanksgiving for the past fuels hope for the future in the present by awakening our confidence in the sovereign trustworthiness of God. Psalms of adoration train us in the disciplined practice of reciting the present character of God. The slow death of hope is often a symptom of attribute amnesia. We grow forgetful of who Yahweh really is, and consequently, what his posture is toward us creatures of dust. So the Psalms rehearse the God who is. They celebrate God in the present tense, like in Psalm 145. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. And this adorational present carries into a hope for the future as disciplined delight in who God is cultivates security in who God will be in the days ahead. Psalms of petition train us in the disciplined practice of reaching for the future promised by God. 
The songs that sing the story of God also engage the desires of God's people. The psalmist acknowledge, put words to, and offer up to God their longings. And as we pray their petitions after them, our often chaotic and disproportionate desires are redirected. Our wants are stretched towards God's telos for his world. The muscles of our hearts are exercised to long for the future that Yahweh holds out to us. When we pray the desires of the Psalms, the Psalms shape our desires through the praying. And finally, Psalms of lament train us in the disciplined practice of exhibiting defiant hope in the face of suffering. Many Christians naturally believe that embodied hope looks a lot like a stiff upper lip in hardship. That complaining to God is evidence of a lack of genuine trust. But in the Psalms, lament is the sound of hope in the darkness. The practice of lament over injustice and suffering is predicated on the conviction that this is not how the world is supposed to be. The vocalization of Godward lament functionally assumes that the Lord still hears and cares about the cries of his people. The plea for God to do something in lament enacts the belief that he is able to deliver and heal. Biblical lament receives the word of God's covenant as the baseline of reality. It evaluates the world through that matrix, begs God to make good on his commitment, and almost always culminates in a confident, soul-comforting confirmation that he will indeed keep his promises. Consequently, our sustained practice of psalmic lament equips us to recognize the instability of this world, to name in honesty the injustice and violence that corrupts creation, to evaluate experience according to the measure of the covenant, to cultivate a holy dissatisfaction with the world as it presently is, to protest against the reign of sin and death, and ultimately to entrust ourselves into the hand of the one who holds the future and has bound himself by blood-signed oath to our restoration and the resurrection of the entire created order. Lament is the practice of hope when all appearances suggest that hope makes little sense. It's a practice that God gives us in the Psalms to forge in us a more resilient hope and to sustain us in hope as we journey through the wilderness toward the promised land of the new creation. By the Psalms, the Spirit trains our souls, and He expands the horizons within which we conceive the world. So let us not neglect to enter the Psalter's stadium of virtue, this blessed means of God's grace to a people who are hungry for hope. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. 
If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.